Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thank you, John. Excellent. Been a bit grumpy today. A bit. A bit. Tom Dines, how are you doing, Tom? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. We're going to talk about Interserve, which is, yes. uh, we've had lots of communication on uh, Interserve, uh, both through the website and emails to me. Some of the, so the concerns that have been uh, expressed in those those communications are addressed in your piece, so we'll, yes. uh, we'll talk about that. Let's start, Phil, with, uh, with your main column this week, which is about pubs, a subject dear to our hearts, and, and, and specifically J.D. Weatherspoon. Yeah. So the pub sector has, has been a horrible sector to to both invest in to to operate in. It's what we we hear all these stories of you know pubs closing every week. JD's Way of the Spoon has been the kind of shining star in this sector, and the question you're asking is, can it continue? Yeah, I think you know if you look at the pub sector as a whole, it's been a it's, it's like a bomb site. I think there are only th- three companies that have really made decent money for investors over the long haul. That is Fuller's. And you've got Young's, which are essentially London-based outfits, where going to the pub, going out, very much part and parcel of the way of life. And uh, the other one is J.D. Weatherspoon, which yeah. operates a very distinct and different way of doing business in that it, it is very much a value operator, has a very simple business model, cheap food, cheap drinks in pubs that are kept in good condition yeah now you and i occasionally go to the pub for a we do occasionally con flab putting the world to rights and you know i know one of your biggest gripes when we go for a pint in london is the price yeah (laughs) yeah and it is quite quite eye-watering sometimes six pounds a pint in some pubs mitchell's and butlers yeah 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 we do go to an mab pub yeah uh, six pound a pint put prices down that's never going to happen. J.D. Weatherspoon, value proposition, and like in many sectors, retail, for example, value is 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 is, is has been the successful yeah. model. I, I am, a, you know, in a general investing theme, I am a big fan of businesses that can communicate value to their customers. Um, this is a this is a winning theme in most sectors. But probably not in pubs. Yeah, but it has been a winning theme for for Weatherspoon. I'll qualify that from now on. From now on, okay. So it has been very successful for Weatherspoons, and it's and it's it's caused Weatherspoons to be a very divisive company amongst customers and rival pub operators to boot yeah i I guess there's something you allude to in the uh, in the piece uh, that you've written which is the kind of snob factor which which means that people like me will cough up six pounds a pint in a a, a pub market and and other people uh and and perhaps not want to go to weatherspoons i can see dom nodding over the control room (laughs) yeah i think there's terrible snobbishness about weatherspoons yeah and you know, you got to park park your opinions about the owner as well. You know, who who talks about other things from time to time. It's from time to time. From time to time. Does he ever talk about anything else? And and, <laughs> and then look at, you know, actually look at what this company does. And you know, there's a lot of people who will disagree with you and Dom. This is this has come through in 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 the numbers that this is a company that has a very effective way of of doing business and is very good at getting people to buy more food and drink from its pubs. I guess the big question is, how how has it been able to 
offer such cheap prices over the years when other pubs seemingly look for every opportunity to add another 5, 10, 10, 10 P oh, to yeah. their pints. I think it's deliberately gone for a volume schedule, volume strategy. So it has, if you look at its margins, you know, its margins are what they're down to about 7 pence in the pound now, 7%. Um, some, some of the bars will, will, will operate. I know Mitchells and Butler's is operating on sort of low double digit margin um which is a valid comparator because they don't have a brewing operation as well um neither do fullers now neither do fullers no, now no, I mean, so this, this is a trend we, we could come a, on to this this is a trend the yeah pub group selling off their, their um, brewing arms. it's going for volume and it's it's essentially it's about keeping keeping the pubs busy so they've opened they, they were the first major pub train to open the doors at 7am in the morning for breakfast and for for coffees and it's about sweating those pub assets and um, getting lots of people through the doors. They're pretty sharp on cost control as well. Yeah. There's, there's a whole sort of ethos about looking for those those marginal gains in, in, in cost. And thankfully for them is that they have been able to get the top line and get the sales going as well. And this is what's kept them out of trouble. One of one of the main reasons why the likes of Mitchells and Butlers and Revolution Bars at the bottom end of the scale have got into trouble is that we've got a lot of cost inflation, particularly wages in this sector, and those those operators have not been really growing their sales, and hence their profits have been under big pressure. Weatherspoons up until last week has been able to offset that, but it seems that the costs are really getting beginning to bite with this company now. Is it that they've reached the point where, because they've been so efficient in terms of managing their costs, there's nowhere else to go? Uh, and actually, the only cost pressures are, are are to the upside because of things like wage inflation. Well, uh, yeah, I think... I don't think, I don't think they've... That- they've got as far as they can get. I think, I think wage... In, it's a very labour-intensive sector. You know, wages are getting close to you know, a third of revenues. And... When you look at an economy that has very high levels of employment, to get people to come and work in pubs, you just have to pay them more. Yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim Martin, as we alluded to, you know, he's a big fan of Brexit. Uh, Brexit, you know, has one of the big concerns that, that's, that certain businesses have is that, that the, the supply of cheap cheaper labour will dry up. Why, why does... I mean, this is, there, there is a paradox here, isn't there? There's a bit of cognitive dissonance, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't want to go there. No, no. It's, uh, we saw some figures, though. It, I mean, they're, 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 their workforce is, I think, front of house is largely UK-based staff. I think it was kitchen staff that were, were, were largely yeah. um, overseas employees. And that's probably a sector issue mm. rather than just a Weatherspoon-specific issue. It's not just wages. Um, it's, it's things like business rates. One of the things I talk about a lot in the piece is... Um, is maintenance and replacement investment of the pubs. This is a big problem for the whole sector, and Mitchells and Butlers have talked about this extensively, in that if you want people to come in, come into your pubs, you've got to keep them looking nice. Mm-hmm. And this, is, this, is, this generates your turnover. The problem is, is that you spend money on these pubs, and... Five or six years later, you have to do it all over again. 
just to keep people coming through the doors. And this has been a big change over the last probably five years where probably you would have asked somebody this question not so long ago and they would have said, well, we can, we can do them up every 10 years. I guess people like Weatherspoon would would, uh, would prefer that all their customers were like journalists who prefer the worst pubs in the world. But uh, <laughs> but but there you go. Um, so so I, there's a figure you mentioned here uh, based based on the the spending and on repairs and maintenance, which is that the, the, the that figure has doubled. Yeah, uh, in recent years, this so, is this is the repairs and maintenance. So this is not this is not replacing furniture ovens and that kind of thing this is just repairs and maintenance broken tiles blocked toilets yeah that kind of thing and if you go back and and look at weatherspoons over the long term which i which i've done this was running at about two percent of sales 20 years ago it's now four and a bit and this is eating in this is eating in into margin and you, you put these this and then you put the replacement, the refurbishment spend that the companies are under big pressure to do, otherwise people go elsewhere. And this is putting a big pressure on profit margins and cash flow. Is it, I mean, is this prompting a change in strategy at Weatherspoons? Because one of the things you mentioned is that it is. it feels that there are certain sites that, that it's perhaps over-invested in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cutting the estate rather than expanding yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, we... What, I think the pub numbers peaked a few years ago, about 950, and we're, what, about eight, 880 now, something that that kind of level. And it seems to me that Tim Martin in particular has put his hands up and said, we're probably not going to open that many more pubs. And so the size of the pub estate is not really going to grow that much. I think what will happen and what has been happening is that they will juggle their portfolio of pubs around and replace poorly performing ones with better performing ones in the same area. Um, but generally, I, I, I think that there's a few signs here for me that the days of Weatherspoons expanding is coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, something we spoke about before uh, before we came into the room was that, that you can see this business being run in a very different way, potentially as as a cash generator. Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the things that gives this away is that the company over the last few years has regularly referred to having a debt level to profits or EBITDA, which is not quite profits, but you know there or thereabouts, of between zero and two times over the long haul, and it's currently running at three and a half times. And given that profits are unlikely to grow that much, in my opinion. The only way you can get that ratio of debt to profit down is by running the business for cash and using the cash flows. And Weatherspoons is very good at generating cash, using those cash to uh, to pay down pay down debt. The, the share price has done really well. It's been great. Do, do you think this is a response to actually people are looking at this this kind of this shifting strategy and going actually we like that. This is the time for this company to do what it's doing. Um. I think this company this company's done a lot of things right over the years. And one of one of the things that actually jumped out when I read the piece was the uh the uh, conversion of of its pubs from from leasehold to freehold. Yeah, that that seems like a very sensible yeah, move margin I think, of safety. Definitely. I think what's happening here is the quality of the pub estate and the profits and the cash flows that come from it is getting higher. 
Um, and what we've had is over the last decade, you mentioned the freehold thing. This has moved from 40% leasehold, 40-60 leasehold freehold to 60-40 freehold leasehold. And this is great for pubs because you get asset backing and you get flexibility to manage your estate. If you look at elsewhere in the sector, which is you know Revolution Bars, which has been an absolute dog of a company, they are running 100% leasehold. And they've signed up to very long leases and the trading has gone down and they can't get out of them and there's no asset backing and you know this is not a sector to get into if you've got no asset backing Mm. um and weatherspoons has spent a a lot of money the last few years a lot of its surplus cash flow to to buy out the freeholds now whether it will keep on doing that i don't know whether he feels that 60 40 is the right mix or he'll do more. I think if he wants to get debt down, he can't do any more of this. Mm. I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you're kind of alluding in this piece to the fact that, that this is this is an ex-growth business. Yeah. I think it is. Does that mean, uh, and as it's run for cash, if if that is the strategy, does that mean that it becomes a dividend payer instead? I think no. I think it becomes a almost like a leverage buyout type business, where the equity of the business builds through retirement of debt, which is a very, to me, is a very smart strategy. Is it worth holding on to the shares for that uh, for that aspect of the strategy alone, potentially? I think, you know, if you ask me, do I think this company is going to do going to keep doing better than most of the sector? I would probably think yes. Yeah, but it's a difficult sector. It's a difficult sector. This is this is this is arguably the best operator in the sector, but it's just so tough out there now. Mm. And it doesn't have a brewing business to sell. So uh, there you go. Interesting, an interesting uh, view on on how you might analyse companies. Yeah, in sense yeah, of that. I think yeah. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Another difficult sector. Uh, thank you, Phil. Uh, another difficult sector is obviously outsourcing. Yeah. Which you, Tom, have had the pleasure of uh, of watching the uh, the downfall of this sector over the past few years, and we've had another another company go to the wall this week. Interserve. Yes. Uh, so they entered administration. Last Friday, curiously enough, they announced they'd won some new contracts on Monday. It's, it's a strange, yeah. It's a strange administration. This one because it's not like Carillion. It's no, not no, like the thing like has literally vaporised. Yeah, it's, it's being managed in a slightly different way. Talks talks through exactly how this works. And and uh, as I said earlier, there have been some questions from our readers mm. um, about why this has been allowed to happen because it's, it's wiped out shareholders. Absolutely, obviously, yeah. uh, and and shareholders can't understand why. Mm. and you might have some explanations for them here. <laughs> um, very smelly, one of them described it as, and it does, I, it I does smell a little bit. <laughs> it absolutely stinks, yeah. So so the key difference between Carillion and Interserve is that Carillion entered liquidation, so the, the contracts were sold off on an individual or, or kind of uh, group, uh, pack, sold off in packages mm. or just sort of ran off. Uh, pre-pack administration, which is what Interserve did, basically meant that Interserve PLC went into administration, all of the companies below it just traded into the ownership of a new company also called Interserve, uh, which was owned by the lenders. Okay. So they say uh, business as usual. Um, not for, they said supplier shouldn't panic, um, employees shouldn't panic, this sort of thing. There, there is a comment from a supplier, actually, on the site, someone who's done yeah. a lot of work for Interserve. Uh, mm. And th- th- they have had some reassurances, but yeah. but but no cash as yet. 
<laughs> I think the cash is cash is king here. It's yeah. For all that they say not to panic at the moment, it didn't go into administration for no reason. So so to imagine it can just continue on as it has been going on seems in in my mind a little naive. I think there will be changes, and uh, there have been. Uh, there's been some some fairly strong rumours, though uh, neither of the companies would comment uh, publicly. That uh, Mighty and Circa have been sniffing around to pick up some of the uh, some of the parts of the business. I, I would expect we'll see a bit of that parts of Interserve being packaged up and sold off. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess these contracts need to carry on. Someone needs to do, to to to, yeah. to to do the work, so mm. that makes sense. I guess the big question is mm. that so so a a rescue package was essentially put to shareholders mm. um, and. Some of those shareholders appear to have voted down this rescue package, yeah. and that's meant that they've essentially ended up with zero. Yeah, and 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 this is the main question our readers ask: is why? Yeah, and that is there's no no hard answers here. Unfortunately, there's a few different theories. Uh, so, in Coltrane Asset Management, a US hedge fund, is the um, the main culprit here. They owned about twenty eight percent of the shares at the time that the group went into administration. They also voted against the deal. Now, they had been opposing it since it was announced. As soon as the details were announced, they tried to requisition a general meeting to fire all of the, re- the directors, with the exception of the CEO, and they they succeeded in getting the uh, deleveraging plan sweetened a bit. Originally, existing shareholders would have ended up with 2.5% of the issued share capital. This was moved up to 5%, but it's still not a very good deal. Yeah, but it's 5, 5% of something, of something yeah. better than 5% of nothing. So the main theories are either they hold some of the debt, which they can try and recoup some of their costs. But we don't know that for sure. Can't can't verify that. Uh, there, there were some uh, rumours supposedly Coltrane put out there that they were going to try and see some of the directors, but I would doubt that any of the directors, even combined, have enough money to recoup the losses. It's kind of it's a shallow well. Mm. Uh, the other the, the other theory is that just from a game theory perspective, it's a game of chicken and it wasn't... The, the payoff from, from giving in was not big enough to justify uh, being seen to give in, essentially. Yeah, this was something you, you suggested to me when we spoke about this yesterday. It was kind of they've taken it on the chin. Yeah. Because rather than fight this and and kind of lose capital, like you know, political capital, as it were, yeah. in the future they can they can be a bit more hardline in their dealings with with similar situations. Absolutely, yeah. They they live to fight another day, and they are they are um, shareholders in Capita, so they own zero point three one percent of Capita. So perhaps they're well, Capita might be the bigger prize here for them. Potentially, yeah, yeah. They also have a uh, I think it's a two and a half percent short stake in Mighty. So they've clearly got some views on what way the sector is going. Yeah. I know we spoke earlier, Phil, you're not a big fan of outsourcing. These are bad businesses. No one on the outside really understands what's going on with these companies. There's there's so much scope for smoke and mirrors, mm. financial shenanigans, contracts. Cash flows are all over the place. And... For many of these companies, not all, but for many of these companies to be loaded up with debt, both on and off balance sheet, because you've got to look at some of these companies are involved in PFI and there is a huge amount of debt that is off balance sheet in these companies is just complete madness as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've spoken about this, uh, maybe even on this podcast, but just there's something fundamentally odd about a model where you, as a, 
uh, an organisation, say a you know local government wanting mm. to save some money, will give a contract to an outsourcer who can make money from something that costs you less. Yeah, I, I've I've never quite understood that. Uh, I don't I don't get it either. I mean, it's clear that you know looking at this from a business point of view, there are things like savings on employer national insurance. Um, scale pension pension payments that kind of thing um but enough to it probably if you look at it on certain projects i can i can buy i can buy into it but on sort of mass scale running of public services um whether whether these companies deliver value for the taxpayer i'm deeply skeptical i mean my 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 theory has been that the only way that they could possibly make money is to degrade the service that that you actually don't get the same service when you outsource it as you would have done were it were it still run by whatever not only that the organization or the company that's doing the outsourcing loses a degree of control of their business in my opinion Mm. they 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 don't they're not at the coalface they are they they lose they lose certain amounts of knowledge mm. about how what's going on within their business by giving it to a third party. And Railtrek is a big example you, uh, you often cite to me because you were you were there when when that whole that whole yeah, thing kicks off. I was yeah. Tell I us was. about it. It's a really fascinating story. Well, yeah, I mean, Railtrek is a classic classic example of um, outsourcing the. Um, the repairs and maintenance of the tracks and the overhead wires and the rail the railway network and companies like Carillion, Balfour Beatty, the outsourcing companies were once upon a time making fat very well reasonably fat margins sort of 5 6% of uh, doing all the maintenance work of the tracks and the stations and the bridges and so on and one of the things that really Sign the death warrant of Railtrack as a public company was firstly it was under pressure to make cost savings on maintenance and it was paying fat margins to contractors but more important than that it didn't really understand the condition of its asset base mm. this is this is what really really nobbled Railtrack in that Every time it came to look at its assets, they were in a worse condition than they thought they would be, which well, which is surprising, really, given you've paid somebody to look after them. Yeah, and it didn't end... I mean, it ended in, 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 in tragedy. It ended, it ended in tragedy, yeah, for lots of different reasons. Financial tragedy, but actually some people lost their lives as a result of yes. this. Yes, yeah, but, but in, in, from, the, from the financial point of view, not obviously not trying to sort of get away from the from the tragedy side of it um the company l- wasn't in control and i'm not saying that was all down to outsourcing a lot of it was done to for bad bad contract decisions on things like the west coast mainline upgrade and the thameslink upgrade um but um certainly in terms of knowledge about how how the, how their business was being run and the conditions of the rail network um I'm I'm pretty much convinced that the choice to outsource the maintenance of that, the day-to-day maintenance of that, to third parties was a big reason why they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. And hence, every time the regulators gave them an amount of money to spend, they would come back as, oh, no, our assets are a lot worse than we think. We need more money. And eventually, you got to the situation where the government just said, I've had enough of this. 
Yeah. So, so we've been paying for it for the last 20 years. Uh, absolutely, yeah, my commute's not cheap. Um, I mean, let's let's uh, come back to you, Tom. Uh, so outsourcing mm. as a model, we're not fans. No. And we're not fans of investors either, uh, really the conclusion of your piece there. And yeah. you've obviously written on Capita as well this week. Mm. I mean, there has been, you know, looking at that share price graph, a little bit of a... A little bit of, uh, you know, sort of optimism yeah, recently, it, actually, but was, you're still not convinced. N- I think based the, the the lack of trust for, uh, for more or less all of the outsourcers gives me a very high barrier that they need to cross to prove that they are kind of doing well again. What, Can, I mean, what are they trying to do? I mean, you, you, in your conclusion to your, to your results rise up, they're trying to basically shift the or, or change the nature of the contracts that they're delivering. Yeah. To, so, to improve the quality of those contracts, get out of the lower margin stuff. Yeah. And you're not convinced that's happening quickly enough. No. So basically what you'll see with uh, a lot of the outsourcers is where they're trying to move away from this perception of them as the, the low margin, we do everything outsourcing. So they'll, they'll now talk about their specialties. With Mighty, they've been talking more about security. With Capita, they've been talking more and more about technology. The problem is the actual uh, tech-focused parts of the business are, are pretty small compared to the, the business at large. Mm. Um, and it's just, for them to actually go kind of full tech company, to, for them to turn into Experian, for example, is it's it's just a big jump from where they are now to where they need to be. And they, they've been doing really well selling off parts of the business, cutting down costs. It's just a question of how much is left once you've cut out all the bad bits to, to kind of become this, swanky new company that's going to disrupt the old company and where the new contracts are going to come from well because exactly. presumably there are other companies going after those contracts too yeah it's very easy to say you'll get like technology will be our future but very few people can actually explain what that means in practice mm. yeah absolutely so so we're not big fans of the outsourcing sector have you got <laughs> any of them want to buy babcock uh, uh no babcock we moved to a hold babcock has actually reclassified themselves as aerospace and defense have they largely in response to this i'd imagine that old chestnut <laughs> <laughs> People don't like outsourcing. I'll shift sector. Um, Circo is doing okay, though I would. I'm a long way off uh, saying to buy them. I think Mears is doing doing all right, but they're very housing focused. You need you basically need something that you can demonstrably hang your hat on. What does yeah. it do? Not just outsource. I mean, there, there is a, there is something to be said for the fact that you know whenever you hire someone to provide a service, you're outsourcing something of your business. Yeah. I guess it's just the scale of what you're outsourcing, how much of, of what you outsource. I mean, you could just, if you were really big unkind... <laughs> Go on, Phil. You could just say, like, <laughs> these companies are like glorified gang masters. Ooh. Just provide, you know, providing you know, pools of labour at the low end of the market. They just... They are a steward of, of labour. Well, G4S, mm. I think, uh, I used to cover that, mm. uh, that sector as well. G4S, if I remember rightly, was, one, was the largest employer on the FTSE 100 because of exactly what you say, Phil. Right. Just, I mean, yeah, armies of security guards, you know, that's what yeah, it yeah. did. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my thing is, is what's the value add here? What's, what's the mm. value add proposition from the outsourcer to the end customer? And you know, I'm I'm not you know I'm not trying to cast aspersions that they're doing anything wrong, I, but I just you know as an investor, I just want to know what what is the USP of this that creates a sustainable, growing, high quality revenue and profit stream? Because I can't see it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. 
So that's that's the verdict on outsourcers. Avoid. Yes. Is, there, is there anything that's caught your eye uh, that you've covered this week, Tom? That, uh, you know, on a more positive note, it's... you don't have to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute deluge this week with uh, with the results season. Save charge, save charge. You've got on a buy. That's an interesting little company. Yes, yeah, that was. Um, I was uh, covering that on uh, on behalf of my colleague Harriet Clarfeld. But yeah, payments is is generally quite an exciting area, isn't it? They've been growing extremely quickly. It's. I was talking to them that on the uh, on the day, and they've got obviously massive growth story. Uh, the revenues were 139 million dollars in the year, but apparently, supposedly, the size of the market is three to four trillion dollars so well, well payments is huge and we've seen the lead story obviously this week is is well pay which is uh again uh in the uh the the, the target the, the crosshairs of an acquisition uh, we spoke last week about mastercard payments is a really interesting mm. area it so is, it's it uh you know you can see the end of cat the end of cash as we talked about last week coming down the mm. road and so. these are these are very profitable businesses yeah 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 you know, safe charges are Pretty profitable business. Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's there's money there's money in this sector. There's gold in these hills. Well, I'll go as far as that, but it's you can see why you know, why people are having a look at this. Well, is it, it, it plays into all of the big trends, e-commerce, and you know, mm. mobile know. mobile devices. Yeah. That, it's a, it's a confluence but, of a lot of these. But big in terms trends. of this sector, you know, it's it's not been a bad place for investors to fish in. No, especially for well pay. Yeah. yeah, two takeovers in six months. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think I saw a very interesting stat actually about WorldPay. How it obviously it used to be owned by RBS, by RBS it? and, RBS, it, and yeah. it became bigger than the market cap of RBS, which oh. obviously is not difficult given what happened to it. But just shows that RBS got rid of this, and uh, RBS it, was forced to get rid of it, wasn't it? Really? Well, <laughs> fair enough. But that's, what, that's what happens when you run your business badly, get in yeah, trouble, exactly. and have to sell off your best bits. Exactly. Uh... So they they sold off the one of something that's turned out to be um, a gem. Yeah, absolutely. What have you been looking at in your uh, alpha report this week, Phil? Hey, what's caught your eye? Well, lots of results. No, I mean, there's no shortage lots of things of results. to catch your eye. One of the things, actually, I I think. One of the most interesting developments of the week is um, JD Sports buying Foot Asylum. Mm. Uh, Foot Asylum, which we've had on a sell yeah. for ages, and rightly so. Well, it doesn't make any, we probably it doesn't make any money, and it can't get the it can't get the right stock, and it's it's, yeah. it's pretty much it was it's a pretty bad idea. Yeah. Now we we we've, we've been slightly caught out by the re, the most recent turn of events, but yeah. but you kind of think this is a good deal for I JD. Think this is a good deal for JD, yeah. I'm, I, li- I like JD Sports as a business. I think it has got a real stranglehold on its market. Don't uh, I just know it? I've got children that buy yeah, trainers. Yeah, and it's it's been tremendous. It's been doing a great job, obviously for its customers and and uh, for its shareholders. I'm a little bit concerned when it when it bought um, Finish Line in America last year. I'm I'm still not convinced about that deal. Given how cutthroat the market for for trainers and athleisure is out in America, but I guess the rationale there was that because JD has such good relations with uh, with the likes of Nike and Adidas, yeah. and that 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 actually, you know, the, the usual problems that that before British companies trying to get to America don't necessarily apply. There is that, but there's also the trend of Nike selling direct to consumers mm. out in that market. Do, so people, do people really buy trainers direct? Well, that's what, I don't buy that's trainers what, anymore. Tom, Tom, do people buy trainers direct? I don't. No. But Amazon's a big player out there as well. Yeah. Uh, much more so than uh, than they are here. But 
I think what what the deal does do is it gives JD a lot of buying power. This is why I think this is the finish line deal rather than the finish line, line deal. deal. Yeah, but it's got a reason about buying power without finishing line. But finish, finish, sorry, finish line. But finish line gives it even more. Mm. And this is why this foot asylum deal stacks up quite nicely, actually, because foot asylum's got. 220, 225 million of sales and it's not making any money on it. Put put JD Sports buying power into this business and you can probably get it making 15 to 15 perhaps 20 million pounds in the next year, 18 months. I presume we didn't pay very much for the, this then. The about if you look at the overall in price, it valued the valued the business at about 90 million. But JD had been buying stakes before then, so JD's in price is going to be less than ninety million. So if they can make fifteen million, twenty million of that, that's a good return on investment. Mm. And it, so it's just quick expansion, really. Then. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good tuck in deal. It's not going to transform JD, but I think this is a really smart deal from a very smart operator. Yeah, it's it's a funny it's a funny. Uh kind of sort of links that there are between these two companies I mean I, 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 I can never get my head around exactly who is related to who here and who yeah. set up what and whose yeah. grandfather is so and so but but there are links here yeah you kind of they must have had their eye on this for a while they knew this was coming yeah and, it, it, and it's I don't think people see this as a massive surprise um, but from a financial point of view from a business point of view I think it's Ticks a lot of boxes. We've always liked JD Sports. It's always it's always been very cheap. The shares in JD Sports, I think. Uh, you know, they're still now what, just over fifteen times next year's earnings. It's not not that you know, for a company that's doing pretty well, growing quite decent margins. I mean, not super high margin. I think nine ten percent margins. Good cash generator. Dominant position in the market. Well, a lot to be said for it. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's been a, that's a perma buy on the IC. I have to say. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I like a perma bear. Yeah, I think, I think I think JD JD was one that stood up. The other the other interesting one was, um, which was the back end of last week, uh, was um, Cineworld. Mm. And I, I think there's a lot of myths that get sort of peddled around about cinemas. I think there's a sort of general general sort of layperson's view that the likes of Netflix and Amazon and Now TV are, are going to kill cinemas. And that's not happening. Uh, actually, cinema attendance, not for Cineworld in the UK, but actually UK UK cinema attendance is, is a buoyant. Aren't they? They're very much reliant on there being a good slate of films. Coming yeah, out that's out of point, their control. Which, so there is a bit of their business that, yeah, as you say, they don't have control over. Uh, I haven't been to the cinema for a long time. I used to go a lot. Do you go to the cinema, Tom? Yeah, in recent years, I've noticed that they've moved away from the kind of big box Odeon type thing. You see, towards you see more and more um, in London. You have Picture House, which is like it's quite trendy. They have craft beer and yeah. it's quite fancy. He's going for the beer then, aren't you? Every man is every man as well. <laughs> every man, yeah. So there's an every man. Uh, Oh, they're not. Are they? They're not. Are they Cineworld? No, every, no. I'm saying every, is the most. Oh, the, you, okay. You mean the the higher end cinema experience? Yeah, right. indeed. Sell you burgers and pizza, and while you're watching the film, you sit on the sofa. Yeah, yeah, and they bring nice out some milkshakes for you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, have been, I have been to them once. And... 
it, I mean, it's very it nice. Beats the audio, and it certainly beats sort of watching it on Netflix, doesn't it? So it's kind of more of an experience. It's like music, isn't it? It's like, quite pricey, though, isn't it? Yeah. And you got you know you got you know family of four of you going going to the cinema. It adds up to quite a lot of money, but mm. not so much in my view that it isn't an affordable treat. And Cineworld is. It's it's doing okay. Is it is it doing okay? I mean, it was when we first started looking at this business, which was I don't know when did it come to market, but we certainly again it was one that we we repeatedly bought uh, from about two thousand and nine ten onwards. Yeah, and it was a UK business. Yeah, it's not anymore. No, and that's it's, that's where it starts to get a bit more messy because it has paid a hell of a lot of money to buy Regal Entertainment mm. in in America. And essentially now, the fortunes of this business are essentially an all-in wager on the American cinema market. I know nothing about the American I cinema know, market. I, I, I know nothing this about is it. where it gets difficult. What I would That's say, a... though, is that it's the American cinema market, if you look at things like admissions, pricing, it's doing better for Cineworld than the UK is. And if you look at if you look at the sort of just to give you a feel on the scale of the business. There's about just over 300 million um, admissions to to the cinemas last year, and about just over 50 million of them in the UK. Mm. So most of it is coming from from America. It's got a big Eastern European business as well, hasn't it? it, it yeah, it, well, not not massive, but it's. But that was the first big deal that yeah, did outside of the UK. But it, in terms of in terms of the scale of it now, it's pretty much pretty much about America. The trouble is, is they've paid a huge price for this. They're getting a very low rate of return on investment and they are carrying a lot of debt. And these businesses are, you know, quite... There's a reasonable amount of fixed cost in these businesses. And you've also got a lot of financial cost in there as well. So you've got, in the the sort of financial jargon, you've got operational gearing... So you've got sensitivity of operating profits to changes in revenues, and you've got financial gearing. That's fine as long as the top line, the revenue line, is growing. Are you in the same sort of territory as you are, you are with pumps? The, the, in terms of the repair and maintenance, for example, you know, as you, as you get as you get these higher end operators emerging, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep yes. your offering up up, up yes, to scratch. Definitely, and I think you know if you look at the way that. You know, you've got Disney launching an online stream, and the, the fear for these businesses is that the filmmakers, these, these companies aren't in control of their content. Mm. It's the film companies that control the content. Having said that, they do do sort of interesting deals with with sort of non-cinema, non-film content. So, you know, things like uh, sort of live streaming theatres, yeah, uh, yeah. productions or sports matches or yeah. whatever. And will, you know, will the sort of big blockbuster movies, will that move away from the cinemas to home streaming plug it into your 65 inch telly and your dolby sound system mm. um i think we're a lot i think we're away from that but clearly clearly that's the that's the risk so this company has got you know it's created it probably felt it had to do this you know this was it either didn't if it didn't do this where would it be mm. but it's paid a very high price for doing so it's got a lot of it's a lot of debt, so there's quite a lot of risk here. But actually, holding up quite well. Yeah, we, we got it. I'm not buy. sure. I'm not sure it's a share that I would buy. Yeah, 
Um, but the number, there are certain metrics look pretty decent. Um, there's decent yield on this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. We've got it on a buy in the magazine. And, yeah, and I, I guess mean, you're not saying don't buy, I don't but, think but it, be circumspect. I, you know, I think they've over, I think they've arguably overpaid for Regal, um, and I think the business carries a lot more risk than it used to. But if they can, they can do okay with it. They can keep generating the cash, paying down the debt. I think you've got a yield of about four and a half percent on this. Mm. It's not. It's not a dog. Yeah, no, it's good business. I've always liked. We've always liked it. Thank you, Phil, and thank you, Tom. Um, let me quickly just talk you all through what else we've got in the magazine. Uh, you covered a few other companies uh, in your your uh, Alpha update this week, Phil. What have you got in there? Ricardo Restaurant Group. We've talked about those quite a lot on this podcast. The, car- yeah. the baffling Ricardo. Judges uh, Scientific. Judges looked- Scientific, which got results for. Us I've well. looked at as well. Yeah, interesting little company. Yeah. We have uh, the Tech Focus looking at the future of transportation, uh, talking about our season tickets earlier. This is where the train operators go uh, from here, because it's not a nice market to be in. Uh, Algae, looking at an old Shaughnessy growth screen. Oh, on oh, the features, James Norrington's cover feature, How to Win at Brexit. Looking at uh, a strategy for whatever happens in Parliament this week, or whatever doesn't happen in Parliament this week, who knows? Um, but James has really looked at some of the, in particular, the risk premium around this and, and actually how you can actually play this political situation to your advantage. Alex Janois has done the secondary feature, which is something uh, very, very much a departure for this magazine, looking at Islamic finance. Um, actually plays, surprisingly, f- from my perspective, into the uh, environmental, social and governance theme, which I know you love so much, Phil. Uh, <laughs> but it's really, really interesting. Uh, and we've, we've actually run one of Bearball's portfolios through uh, some of the, uh, the screening criteria that, that Sharia finance requires. It's, it's really, really fascinating. And yeah, lots and lots of results, lots in the uh, comments section, uh, including Paul Jackson looking at GVC. That was a great column. It is a great column. I do, I do like his evisceration my, of management my, greed. My pick of the week. It is a good. It is a great column. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, lots of the news section as well. We've talked through in serve. We talked through JD Sports. Uh, we haven't talked about Asos. ASOS, my kids always tell me off for pronouncing that yeah. incorrectly, which has had a kind of interesting week. And Imosat, which uh, has, uh, has another, has a bit of interest there in the satellite operator. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you, Phil. And pick up the magazine, All Good News Agents, How to Win at Brexit, Make the Battle to Leave the EU, Stack Up for Your Portfolio. It's one of my favourite covers of the year so far. Anyway, see you all next week. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.